There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello, podcasts. How are you? I am speaking to you from Birmingham. I am here because last night I sang one of my support gigs for Steps, who are on tour at the moment. We are three gigs into the tour. So last night in Birmingham, tonight we're in Birmingham again. So stayed up overnight. And as I chat to you, I have a very exciting view of a huge construction site out of the window of my um, hotel room where they are using a... Actually, that is quite amazing. They're using a huge crane to lower down one of the top levels of what looks like a big car park. But it's huge. Whoa. That's actually pretty cool. I like seeing things like that. I mean, overall, watching a construction site is not like a hobby of mine. I wouldn't want you to think that. (laughs) But I seem to have caught it at quite an exciting moment. So that's good. And the gigs have been going well. Uh, it's quite a strange one for me because I've sung in arenas before and I've sung gigs on my own before, but I think this is the first time I've ever done a sort of solo half-hour bit of me singing in an arena. And so I'm not with my band on this tour. I'm just on my own. And I come out just before steps go on and I do half-hour and it's just this little stage with a dark curtain behind me because, you know, don't want to ruin the surprise of all the amazing staging for Steps. And it is really beautifully put together, their show. And they're having a lot of fun and it's going down brilliantly. The fans have been loving their their gigs. But yeah, my job is to warm the crowd up. So I come out and I just feel a bit, I feel a bit teeny tiny. It's a bit like doing an audition because you come out, you're on your own. There's a light in your eyes. You can't really see the crowd very well. And you just 
singing your way through some songs, thinking, I hope this is going okay. <laughs> but the Steps fans have been gorgeous, really, really friendly. Uh, the Steps gig is really good fun, and the whole thing is just about having a really lovely, good, fun night out, uh, which is definitely what's being delivered. Uh, so that's been really lovely. Happy days. And I can finally tell you about something that's been taking up a lot of my headspace for the last few months, which is I'm doing a challenge for children in need. So this has just been announced. If you're listening to this podcast on Monday when it comes out, it's just been announced today. I'm now talking to you from the past. This is Saturday, by the way. Hope Sunday went all right. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so in just over a week, I will be beginning a 24-hour kitchen disco dance-a-thon. What is that, I hear you ask? Basically, I'm going to the radio theatre in Broadcasting House, just not far from Oxford Circus, and I'm stood on a little stage that looks a little bit like a disco kitchen, and I will start dancing at 9.30am on Tuesday morning, and I will not stop. (laughs) I will not stop no matter what until 9.30 on Wednesday morning. I'm going to dance my way through the day, through the night. I'll be joined with guests either in real life or on Zoom. Plenty of music. Radio 2 will be providing me a soundtrack to last me through through the hours. Um, I'm also going to be doing five little spot discos where I'll sing a couple of my songs and a cover. And I'm joined by special guests for that as well. So, you know, it's exciting. I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit nervous. And I mean, how do you prepare for that anyway? Uh, the sleep deprivation thing, generally speaking, I've got down pat. But then I've never done it where I'm not allowed to sit down for 24 hours. I think it is going to be tiring. But I think there'll be some fun there too. And I'm planning on varying my moves a lot. And if you like what you see when I'm dancing, or even if you don't, please feel free to put a couple of quid in the tip jar because every bit of money you raise will go straight to BBC's Children in Need. And I've been visiting some of the projects that benefit from Children in Need fundraising and they are amazing. As you can imagine, I've been everywhere from a children's hospice to community centres, meeting people, talking to the people involved, hearing how the um, charity has, has benefited these different uh, projects and it's been incredible. So yes, you can press your red button at any point and have a look at this crazy woman dancing on her own at the radio theatre. Oh my gosh. Uh, I think the well will run dry pretty quick with the variation of dance moves, but hey, I'm here for it, baby. I'm here for it. Right. <laughs> this week's guest... Like shifting gear now, guys. So this week's guest is someone that I've wanted to speak to for a really long time because I'm actually a really big fan of what she does. Her name is Polly Morgan. She's an artist. Her main medium is taxidermy. And she incorporates the animals in lots of different ways through her work. And she speaks about it much better than I can when we're, you know, having our chats. But her work is really beautiful and arresting and what I really loved about the first time I saw some of her works, the first thing I think I saw was, it's like a a little, almost like a cheese dome, so like a glass dome, and inside was a tiny little funeral table with a dead bird on top and a tiny little chandelier hanging above it. So her taxidermy and her art, they don't necessarily represent the animals alive again. It's not like they're reanimated. In fact, they're quite often... um, 
an extremity. They're either they either look like they've just died or they look like they are completely buzzing with vitality and you know you'll get like tiny chicks with their mouths open and it's almost quite a sort of screaming representation of life but there's not not much in the middle where they're just sort of in repose it's not the victorian interpretation of taxidermy where you'd see them sort of sitting up on little chairs and drinking cups of tea it's much more about life and of course sometimes death and i just i've always found her work really arresting and really brilliant and it was a complete joy to to meet her uh, and to speak to her. I'd never met her before. I'd only spoken to her on email when I bought one of her pictures for my husband for Christmas a few years back. And what that was was a tiny little bird called a red pole um, that sits on top of a frame. And inside the frame is a picture of a nest that is drawn using the ashes that's made from the remains, the sort of inside remains of that red pole bird. So it's really quite beautiful and it's in our hallway. And I'm very, very glad to own it. And I, I think, yeah, I think she's great. And her story is really interesting. So over to Polly now. And um, yeah, and if, if, if you're interested in what happened at the end of the construction site, they have now placed, they've now placed the top layer of the car park with the massive crane. And everybody on the construction site, all the little dozers, which you'll recognise as the reference to Fraggle Rock, if you're of the same vintage as me. So all the, the, the guys working on the construction site seem pretty happy with the placement. So thumbs up for that, and thumbs up for this chat. See you on the other side. I'm excited to talk to you about lots of things. Um, but also I think I'm probably uh, quite an unusual person to talk to you in that I have also done some taxidermy. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, I did it with my family. Uh, we were <laughs> with your children family? Or your... I would have done it with them, but this was quite a while ago. So, no, I did it with my... Actually, no, I think I was pregnant with one of them at the time. But yeah, I did it with my brother, my sister, my mum and my husband. And we all... Um, What's the past tense of taxidermy? Tax. Well, I say taxidermied, but I don't think it's a word. I think you still say taxidermy, although that sounds a bit odd. Okay, I taxidermy. No, that doesn't no, work, does it? No, I performed taxidermy. Yeah, I taxidermied a, a mouse. And oh, not a good thing to start on. Oh, really? Why would you? Well, well, I bet it went horrible, didn't it? <laughs> um, some of them were really Fiddly, spectacularly and they, they, funny. They, um, the bacteria grows very fast on mice and they tend Ooh. to do this thing called slipping when the fur just starts to sort of run off the skin because well, it, it degrades. You when we finish you still got it? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm impressed. And the moths haven't eaten it. You know what? I'm going to go and grab it. I think you need to give an assessment to my taxidermy skills. Because I found them quite difficult to do. <laughs> what, do you I, know it wouldn't be something I'd recommend starting with. Although I, a lot of people do start on mice, I, I guess because they're small. I mean, <laughs> hours doing these tiny little... So this is my one. So uh, sitting on a chair, reading a book about uh, concise inorganic chemistry. Kick the heels off. How do, what do you think of that? It's, um, I've seen far worse. Thank you. <laughs> it's not bad, actually. I mean, it's, it's not good either. <laughs> But it's not bad. It's got a very small... Well, I suppose they have got small heads. The, no, the ears you're right. are a bit... But the ears aren't actually... Because the ears are so difficult. Do you, did you turn them inside out? Do you remember that part or not? Uh, so, 
what I remember is yeah, making an incision, story. removing all the soft tissue. Well, the, the body. You must have gone right around the whole body. Right, right? around the body. taking that out. Uh, leaving teeth. pores. And um, <laughs> then you have to take out the, the skull and you have to clean the inside with certain things. And that's, that's Richard's one. Richard's one is uh, playing some music with... He's got some yeah, little vi- he's got vinyl. <laughs> Such a funny <laughs> thing, isn't it? I think yours is slightly better. Sorry, Thanks. Richard. So do I. It's all right. I it's prefer... Very lopsided face, this one. I know. Character. Ham- hammered. It's like... <laughs> It's after a night out and he's falling against the record player. He really is. <laughs> Actually, it's basically us. We've made taxidermy versions of us. I've realised mine's got little high heels and it's just yeah, leaning into a record player after a few too many Negronis. Um, but yes, we had to, so we had to treat the inside and then wash the outside with, a, I think, like a sort of almost a washing up liquid and then yeah. fluff it up with a hairdryer. Mm-hmm. And then begin the process of reintroducing the stability that a spine spine would normally They don't look very stable, but... (laughs) There's a reason why mine's sitting down. But um, it took three and a half hours to... That's very quick. Is it? Yeah, it would take longer than that. I mean, if you do it really properly, you should tan the skin over three days. But um, you can, I think there are... They've actually lasted really well. Mm, Um, They um, they must have been very fresh. They were very fresh. Um, But um, I was thinking about it as an art medium because obviously there's tons of craft involved in taxidermy and skill to be able to taxidermy something Mm. um but also you've got an element of your art that also might suggest things to you because of the the fact that that animal is a something that does it bring something does each animal bring its own thing to what you create yes definitely i mean i Right in the beginning, I mean, thinking about the stuff I first started working on, it was about, I was quite interested in working with animals that were overlooked or at least um, the animals that we don't consider beautiful anymore because of the overfamiliarity, like rats or pigeons, that kind of thing. So I kind of enjoyed trying to make people look at them afresh, I guess, and mm. sort of to see the beauty in them. And they're like, the, the first, one of the first pieces I made was a rat kind of spilling out of the champagne bowl glass. And the woman who bought that said she hated rats, but she found it really beautiful. So that was quite nice. Um, but then since then I, did, then, I did start to kind of, it would be a question of just being donated things because everything dies naturally. So I just work with what I've been donated and kind of like playing around with them, like literally taking the bodies out and looking at them and the colours and the textures. And mm. it's a lot about the juxtaposition of form and colour and texture for me. So I'm thinking about the work always as a sculpture as opposed to the... I don't really... I'm not interested particularly in the kind of um, significance an animal might have in terms of its symbolism or, you know, mm. they, animals come with a lot of baggage. Like we just, we tend to, we think foxes are sly and snakes are sort of evil. And so I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to kind of get away from that, remove the work from that as far as I possibly can, which is quite challenging. Yeah, and um, well, I mean, you're just saying you're working a lot with snakes now that you don't really yeah. like that much when they're alive. But Well, I, it's not that I don't like them. I'm afraid of them, I think, yeah. quite justifiably when they're alive. Yes. But they are, they're incredible creatures. So incredible. I mean, and the more I've handled them, the more amazing they really are. Um, but they are, they were the kind of perfect bridge for me into the new work that I'm doing because it's much more about, I, I sort of see them like as a modelling material, really. They're like these long, thin tubes I can manipulate and mm. make into different shapes and structures and... I tend to either use pieces of them kind of packed together to kind of represent flesh or I tuck the heads right away. So you never, I never 
or very rarely will model the actual head of the snake. Because I want, I kind of want to get away from that visceral reaction we have from them and the kind of snakiness of a snake. And mm. I think the head's quite confrontational in a way. Uh, and I want to see them much more as form and colour and texture. So snakes have been perfect for doing mm. that. No, and I can see that uh, absolutely what you mean, that when you don't think about them as the symbolism of the animal, but you just look literally at the form. And, yeah. the, you know, on a snake, you've got the iridescence of the skin and mm-hmm. actually how amazingly constructed so much in nature that is just mind-blowing that that's how something's evolved and how it exists and i know it's, it really is yeah and the strength of it and how it would move and how you can shape it and um, just all of our references in pattern and textiles and our own like like nail design all of these things so much stuff comes from i mean it all comes from nature really mm. you can kind of trace it all back to that so i like to kind of juxtapose them with much more contemporary kind of takes on pattern and color yeah, no, I think all of that, I can totally understand that and see the beauty in all of that. And it's funny because I was thinking about when I was a child and whenever I was, because like most people, my people who don't grow up on, on farms, I'd say, the my most normal way to interact with any animal that wasn't alive anymore was when it was making food. So, you know, yeah. you've got the whole chicken and things like this. And I was always really encouraged to not be at all squeamish, to actually kind of be quite impressed at the the beauty of how things are formed. And I've never mm. had any squeamishness about dealing with, with you know, if I'm making something that has meat in it, I'm completely fine with that. And fish and all that. And if we ever buy a whole fish from the fishmonger, I'm always, you know, looking at it and showing the kids. And mm. I, I've, I've never had any awkwardness with that. And then, well, I think you kind of inherit those things from parents. I think a lot of the time, if, you're, if you've got the sort of parents who scream at you to back away from a dead animal if you find it as a child or they're squeamish themselves about meat and they, you, you tend to be kind of really divorced from that but yeah you yeah. can disassociate can't you but because yeah. I, I was thinking rather than asking you about why you're not squeamish because actually i think that's as you say sort of maybe from learn thing are you often surprised by how many people are squeamish definitely yeah to begin with i was a bit uh, yeah absolutely i'm most people are um, and I never was, not even in the first lesson. Um, I, I mean, I am... There are certain things I think are completely innate within us, like to be repelled by maggots, because I guess that's just... An, we're primed to be repelled by maggots because they would indicate rotten flesh and we don't want to eat rotten flesh because we might die. And I am disgusted by some of the smells and if the animals have maggots, which sometimes happens. But generally, everything I work with has to be really fresh. So I've just always been way more fascinated and curious about learning about the animal or about the it's amazing I mean just to get under the skin of something is a real sounds weird but it's a real kind of privilege because we only really see I don't know the exact percentage of the body that skin forms but let's say 10-15% and we never really see what goes on underneath that unless Mm. we're medical students and I was never really particularly engaged with science at school because we never got to cut stuff up and never got to like... I think you need a tactile experience sometimes or a sensory experience in order to learn stuff. I certainly did, I realised. I wasn't so good at sitting and just listening to people talking and writing on blackboards. It was only when I actually got to kind of touch and feel and smell and associate some sort of memory with something that Mm. I would learn. Yeah, and I suppose, like you say, of everything being influenced by nature, there's a real poetry in all of that as well, I think, in terms of the the cycle of everything and, as you say, what's going on beneath the surface and how everything's moving. And Does it affect your relationship with your own body when you're exploring that? It, 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 it's made me want to be more fit, definitely. Really? I have, yeah, I, I've had moments where I remember skinning a 
fox once. It was a young fox, an adult, but a young adult had been hit by a car. And it was beautiful. And under the skin, it was just so beautiful. It was like, it was so lean and the muscles and I just, because it, it was so, so fresh. The meat was really pink and I was just really struck by its, because if you, it's like when you're skinning an older animal, sometimes there's sort of fatty deposits and things are sort of like degrading a little bit. And it was just, it made me, definitely made me think about that, about my own, like, I was, about what went on under my skin and, like, whether I was kind of looking after that part. Because we spend so long, like, a lot of my work, the, the themes behind my work is uh, are a lot to do with veneers and about kind of surface and reality and about what we, how we go about, we put uh, filters on our faces, on social media and all of those sorts of things. And it's all about kind of deception, really. But it make me, it definitely makes me think much more about, looking after the kind of reality the body than like not worrying too much about what's going on on the outside which is all just trickery really yeah that's really interesting i suppose especially when you're aware of that sort of percentage of what that's only such a small part of who we are and what what forms us yeah and it's kind we're... of a shortcut because we're just we look in the mirror and we think okay we look good today we've done our makeup or our hair and mm. and we feel better about it but it definitely makes me think more about um about the whole thing the whole organism yeah and i suppose i was um, listening to an interview where you were saying that actually your work is uh, sometimes but quite rarely about death and just because mm. it involves a dead animal is actually mm. not really yeah I would say I mean right in the beginning I definitely didn't I, I think I didn't do enough to distance the work from death but it wasn't as death I, I've, there's always been this real but certainly in the beginning maybe less so now but yeah I felt like people made this fundamental mistake about all well, about me certainly with that I was kind of morbid or I was into death in some way I mean I hate death <laughs> as much as the next person I'm terrified of it uh, but it's a logistical fact the animal has to die in order for me to work on it that's mm. all it's just another material really I can't I'm not going to start skinning live animals so yeah I, it's a, I used to say you know you wouldn't say that a charcoal drawing is about death because it's burnt it's dead wood mm. it's, you, so it's just I mean I understand if you're constructing it to look like a dead animal, of course, that's good. it's going to come into people's minds. But it was about a lot more than that and more actually about life, I think, for me. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I suppose some of those ideas probably come from the era when taxidermy was is quite associated with, like Victorian times. And mm. that was an era that was very obsessed with yeah. the taboo of death and how to handle that. And they did the um, anthropomorphizing of the... Mm -hmm. Went with taxidermy to make them look like little people. It's actually quite yeah. peculiar. Like, but you're like I know, mine. Like mine. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully, I have a bit more of a sense of. Well, actually, no. I suppose they thought they maybe they did think their ones were funny too. The, the Victorians. Well, cause... yeah. I think. I mean, the, the most famous one is Walter Potter, who, and I think they definitely were supposed to be some humour in them and some eccentricity to it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Those eccentricity. Actually, that's a really good word for it. I mean, when you're doing something like you know with. With taxidermy, does it? Do you feel like connected in a way to these people that have gone before? This was the line you're following. Not really. No. No. Well, because I, with I, I always hesitate. Whenever I make the distinction between myself and taxidermist and say I'm an artist, I feel like I'm being kind of snobby. But it's not meant like that at all. It's more. It's kind of out of respect for them in a way because I think as a taxidermist, you spend years trying to make your animal look as lifelike as possible, and that's not what I do. I mean, mm. I chop snakes up in the studio and I use the the bits of them to form bigger sculptures and so I think it's much more about a full sculpture for me I do lots of um, molding and casting of other objects 
So I don't actually know. I'm much more likely to sort of look at other artists and think of myself in the kind of art lineage, I think, than in taxidermy. Although, I guess, I mean, I definitely have a place in the taxidermy world. And I think it was more that I was looking at taxidermy and I, I liked it. But at the same time, it wasn't being displayed in the way that I would have displayed it. This is how I kind of got into it in the first place. I didn't really want to own it particularly. I wasn't really interested in having a cabinet where you mimic the natural environment of the animal, which is just sort of like a three-dimensional photograph to me. Um, I, I, I kind of wanted to... I thought as a medium, it was very untapped. If you think about photography or painting and how there's, there's so many different styles with taxidermy, there wasn't really that. Yeah. Um, so it was really like more of a springboard for me to make sculpture. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. Sculpture is, is exactly yeah. And I, so you've now got a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Is that right? Yes. And so you boys. were saying before we started recording that you've been working in the basement of your house. Yes. That was that the case before lockdown as well. Uh, it was actually no. It's my, it has been my studio since I was pregnant with the first one. Um, oh, actually no. Since he was born, I had a studio during my pregnancy. Um, it's uh, and I say it's the basement. It's a great space. We live in an old pub, so it's a, it's oh, the cool. beer cellar. Um, oh, amazing! And it's not. We haven't really. We've done up lots of the building, but the basement is the last sort of untouched bit, which is very much a beer cellar still. It's like concrete floors, very low hanging ceiling. Luckily, I'm not too tall, but a lot of my visitors whack their heads on <laughs> pipes and things when they come down. Uh, there's no natural light. It's cold, but it's actually a good space to make a mess because I do make a lot of mess down there with the. Um, Mostly with the moulding and casting, actually, but also like sometimes if I'm chopping things up or mm. is it's it just... quite a private space or do the kids come down? Yeah, no, it's pretty, it's good. That's the other good thing about it. It's got a lockable door at the top. I don't normally lock it, but they don't really come down. I mean, it's kind of dirty and cold and dusty, and they're one of the older ones. A little bit more intrigued, um, so I'll bring him down sometimes. But it's full of really dangerous things as well, so I can yeah. lock it. So it's perfect, um, and it was meant to be temporary. But then actually it just kind of is so much easier when you've got young kids and you, the idea of like of traveling to and from a studio and losing like precious hour or whatever it might be in uh, commuting is just wasn't really feasible. So it's yeah. been a really useful thing. And particularly I was really lucky through the first lockdown when we really weren't allowed to go anywhere. It was great because um, my boyfriend's an artist too and he'd been traveling a lot before that. So suddenly he was grounded, which was brilliant for me because it meant he had to like split the childcare. And we would just take it in turns to work. So one of us would have the kids and the other one would go down. He's got, he works mainly on a computer, but he'd be in the office or I'd be in the basement. So it really came into its own at that point. However, I do love leaving the house because I don't get to do that very often. So I jumped at the opportunity to come here. And how good are you with the sort of discipline of that? If you're, if you're finding that you're, you know, we did, was it very obvious to you how you still prioritise your need to make work? Or did you sometimes feel a bit torn with the kids? around all the time and Are you, do you mean specifically lockdown i suppose a bit of that and also just uh, just, just having yeah just yeah. generally because i know that that's something i struggle mm -hmm. with when i'm home yeah it is tricky uh it's been a lot easier since everything's gone back to normal one of them's in full-time nursery and the other's at school so i get a very specific hours now mm. that i work in and because i know they're finite i tend to be quite productive in those hours yes um during the whole lockdown, I mean, everything was just like a mess for the beginning. I didn't. I was just kind of winging it for the first week or so, and then I realised that we had to be really structured about it if it was going to work. So I timetabled everyone, and we all had our kind of like 
what I would be with Clifford at this point and Matt would be doing something with Bruce then we'd have them on our own and then he'd go and work and then I'd work and it worked really well like that I think they they you know kids are very conservative they thrive in structure I think so yeah it kind of worked well for us all in the end but um yeah, I mean, you know, it's, well, you're always torn about stuff like that, aren't you, about working from home. And I try really hard to make sure that the time that they're home, that we have together, is ours. I'm not yet on top of my phone usage. I still find myself staring at that sometimes when they're talking to me, and I'd like to do something about that. Yeah, it's quite hard, all that, especially if your phone is basically your office. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and there's no one else answering the emails, so you kind of feel like you should check them. But, um, but they're lucky because we, we both work from home. And they see us a lot. If I think about their friends, who a lot of whom are in after-school clubs and breakfast clubs and mm. have uh, nannies pick them up and things like that, do, do, they probably see a lot more of us than they, than they would, I think, if we were actually going into an office or mm. a studio far away. So I think overall they, they've got a fairly good deal. Yeah, at the no, moment. I bet they, I would have loved <laughs> but, having you working from... And my kids would love it if I was here like that, working from home. I think they find it really... Even if I'm not in the same room, just reassuring. Exactly. I think just knowing you're around, exactly. Because, yeah. I mean, we do. We have the occasional nanny and things coming through and helping out. But um, the fact that we're there, I think, really helps. And you get them up and you put them to bed. Exactly. Yeah, that continuity is really good for, for small people. They like that a lot. And I know that uh, the last couple of months when I've been more working at sort of normal pace um i've had a lot of complaints from my older kids especially about the fact that i don't have a job where i'm just not going away as much and not out as much which is quite tough <laughs> so i've kind of gone back to that i think oh. they had you know 18 months of not yeah. really that not really applying yeah. but mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I do wonder what it must be like when you've got 
small kids and you're introducing them to your work when you're an artist and obviously there's a lot of your work that's really conceptual and has it been interesting seeing seeing it through their eyes being introduced to the things that you're sort of fueled by and driven by it's starting i mean they're still quite young um the elder one but that, having said that i think the elder one i don't like to say this I, I don't like to kind of make assumptions on them too quickly about what they're into and what they're not into however it seems that the eldest one is going to be more creative than the younger one. He's certainly always been really into drawing and making stuff and he asks so many questions about our work. Whereas Bruce, the three-year-old, is totally disinterested in anything really that we do. He's never... I mean, it's so funny. If I think about when Clifford was three, he would ask about the snakes. He would come down and look in the freezers. He would just say things like, wow, this is a really beautiful one you've made here, Mum. And like... Whereas the other, I don't even know if you, I, I don't think Bruce really knows what I get up to at all down there and he's not interested in any way. But um, it, it, I mean, it's, I think I'm going to go through a period. This, my prediction is that I'll go through a little sweet spot with them where they think I'm quite cool and then they'll suddenly realise how weird I am and they'll be really <laughs> embarrassed about everything. That's actually more fun than you think though when you get to that I point. really, yeah. you can embarrass them I've been revelling in that space for a little while now, I quite like it, if I'm honest. And actually, broadly speaking, I have a very similar dynamic with my um, my eldest too in that the first one was always a lot more interested in what, what Richard and I get up to and the next one down. Um, Maybe they're more interested in the old child. Maybe that's yeah, it. Yeah, that might be it. They're looking to you and then the second one's looking to their brother. Yeah, and I think also kids are quite clever at, well, this is just, you know, from what I've, what I've seen. They're quite clever at seeing what's gone before and kind of doing the opposite. Yes. Because that's a gap in yeah, the market. Yeah. So yeah. Um, That's definitely been the case of mine. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a sort of... Uh, it's a way of standing out, I guess. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, has anyone taken has anyone up that done space? This? Yeah, yeah, that'll <laughs> be my area. Um, so yeah, I think, and I, I quite enjoy both aspects of that. Actually, I like the fact that I can have lots of chats with my elders yeah. about things, and then, um, yeah, I love the fact that Kit's completely disinterested in ninety percent work, and I don't think he's even that bothered about a lot of like music in general, really. But I do think it's very refreshing that. Yeah, it's fun, and and also like you're sort of rooting for them in a weird way, like okay, yeah, be your own person, that's all good. And I think there's the big sort of headline I think actually is that it's really I like raising family in a really creative environment because I think it's a nice space to grow mm. up in in your childhood if kind of anything goes really so long as you're expressing yourself it's all good so I think there's lots of benefits for that that I'm sure well and also you're just kind of bringing from. in loads of different examples of ways to live I think as yeah. well and they get to see that I think yeah yeah important. we have we don't go out very much but we always have we bring people into the house a lot of the time so we have various people sometimes will just live with us for a while because we have a spare room so people we really like who might maybe younger people who might need somewhere to live or maybe we'll do a bit of work in the studio in lieu of rent things that we just kind of get okay. them into the house what are the creatives like artists yeah we've had both we've had an artist and and another the guy's living with us at the moment is an actor and a uh Actor and builder. Ah, quite that's very handy. <laughs> <It is. laughs> can talk about theatre, yeah. and he can. And I often, I will offer shelf, free please. studio space to younger artists that I like for periods of times, and they just because I just really like having company when I'm working. Mm. So there's just lots of different types of people coming and going, and I think that you don't have to foist them on your children, but it's just nice that they get to witness that. I think definitely. No, I, I actually sounds quite similar to my own upbringing as well. My mum would have lodges quite often, and I think it's quite healthy to encourage curiosity about other people actually and ask questions yeah. and hear about other lives and 
That's probably why I've ended up doing this podcast to be honest. Mm-hmm. I get to do it um, yeah. legitimately. <laughs> so, um, it's been really, I really, yeah, I think that doesn't leave you actually. It's interesting you say you like to work with other people, given that that's probably something that's not the normal thing. That, or, is, or is it, do you often find there's someone alongside you? I mean, at the moment, I haven't got anyone down there. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I didn't miss it at the beginning at all because I've worked throughout university in like my early 20s I was working in a bar I started as a glass collector and just worked my way up to managing the bar and then when I when I graduated they just offered me this position and I didn't really want to go and work in an office so I did that for a bit and that was really really social and it was really good for me at that time because I was quite shy when I came to London and it just completely knocked that out of me having to like kick people drunk men out at 2am from a bar it kind of tends to make you a bit more confident Mm. and then I um then I just kind of became an artist and suddenly I'd gone from that to just working on my own. And I, re- I liked it, I actually. I think as an antidote, it was really nice just to be able to be in control of my own time and my own space. But then I just got to a point where I suddenly realised that I, I felt really like I was missing out on... You, do, you miss out a lot on friendships because some of the strongest friendships that you have, or most people have in life, come out of working with people like colleagues. When else do you kind of get a chance to really intimately get to know someone unless you're dating them or they're your family? It doesn't Mm. really work that way. And I just didn't have that. I didn't really have a core of people. I had lots of sort of random friends, some of whom would know each other. And I sort of have got a little group of friends-ish now. Sometimes we'll go on holiday together or we, you know, we kind of make an effort to hang out. But they're all pretty sort of disparate and random and I've had to kind of work on that myself. So I, I realised that I, if, if, you wanna, if you want that, you have to kind of make it happen yourself. So I, I would take interns when I was younger and a bit busier. I would um, have, uh, sometimes I had like three or four interns for busy periods and they were like some of the happiest working times. We'd all cook for each other and, and it, there was a real kind of camaraderie about it. Mm. So now, yeah, I just have to kind of lure people in somehow <laughs> yeah yeah well no, I can see that like, I, I totally agree with you that whole thing of being able to see everybody every day and get that that camaraderie going and it's actually you get that momentum as well it's like an enthusiasm because I yeah. think when you're when you're an artist and your own cheerleader I imagine it all falls on your shoulders to be motivated yeah, I guess so, the next but, but project also just making every decision myself I find really mm. really exhausting and boring and I mean, I, st- I still have to do it, but it's still nice if you have someone that you can kind of bounce ideas off at least. And also just working in a vacuum, I don't think it's healthy. You're not really going to progress far. You need to, you need to be witnessing someone else, maybe working on something else, maybe using different mm. materials or somehow all of those things just kind of have, you know, maybe just the tiniest influence that will set you off on a slightly different course. And I found it really, it's really worked. It's been very productive doing that. Do you think there's quite a lot of mystery for most people about how it is to live as an artist? I don't know, probably. I, I mean, I'm, I do mostly hang out with, with other artists or people in that kind of world, so it's not something that it occurred to me. But it does, yeah, I get a lot of questions asked of me when people know. It's, I kind of feel like I'm quite fortunate in that way in that it's like, it opens, it's like a conversation starter when I talk about what I do, like, you know, maybe at the school gates or something. People are curious, so they want to know more, whereas if someone tells me they work in, like, IT or something, I, I just don't know what to say from now on because I maybe not IT I don't know recruitment or something and I'm sure they've got these great jobs and they must be very interesting in their own ways but I suddenly 
I kind of, it, it, it more throws a light on how little I know about stuff like that. So I just, someone said they worked in mergers and acquisitions and I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And I just thought it kind of shuts me down. Have you had any good acquisitions recently? <laughs> Merged anything fun? Whereas I think if you say, particularly the taxidermy element, but also just as an artist, I think people, they're curious, they want to see where you work in the space yeah. and the materials and stuff. And Well, I'd imagine yeah. there's maybe more curiosity that the most artists would experience when you say that the medium you work Definitely in. Definitely the medium, yeah. And what's the most common response you get to people Where do you donate? get your animals from? Where do you get your Almost animals? straight away in a slightly hostile way <laughs> until I answer and then they kind of soften. When Holding on to the dog lead a little bit. Yeah, yeah they, well, they, they, have, they wait. So they, they want to know quite how to respond to me depending on my answer. Um, and as soon as I've cleared that up, generally they soften and then yeah. they ask. I get this literally, I used to, joke about having a t-shirt printed up with about five bullet points on just answering all of those questions because one would be what's the most what's the most amazing animal you've ever stuffed what's the what 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 would be your kind of ultimate would you ever stuff a human that that would always come up quite high (laughs) i wouldn't even thought to ask that i always get that one um yeah, there's just there's four or five stock questions, <laughs> which is fine. I understand. I'm sure I do the same thing to other people. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, and the curiosity is quite fun. But I think, yeah, the, the, the idea of like just standing at the school getting a cat wanders past and you're stroking it. Yeah, I know, yeah, people always do that. <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of jokes about people's pets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and going back with your, so with your babies, I, yeah. I often ask people, what was going on in their life when they had their first baby. But I, I know that the, the route to being a mother was a bit more complicated for yeah. you. So you found yourself, is it 31 that you had the appendicitis? Or oh, was well that? done. You've done lots of yeah, yeah. research. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was 31, yeah. I think it was exactly then, yeah. So um, was that the point you were also starting to try for a it baby? It was just before, no, it was, it was. I think it was 32 that I started actually thinking about really trying. But it's something we talked about and we knew was kind of imminent. And then... Um, so you'd always wanted to be a mum I day. had, yes, I had. And um, I'd been quite firm with my... My boyfriend's quite a bit older. He's now 55 and he had a child when he was 23 who's also now a father. He's 31 now. Oh. Yeah, so he's a grand, grandpa. Um, and so I had said... I think we'd, we'd been together for, I don't know, three or four years when I was about 30 and I'd said you know, by the way, if this is going to continue, this is what has to happen. And he kind of was always a bit like, yeah, soon. I remember, but you're quite old, you know, you want to be a really <laughs> old father. So we kind of agreed it would happen quite soon. And then uh, we went on safari to the Serengeti on this, this trip that I really wanted to do. And, um, and then it's the day we got, the day after we got back, I got really sick. Um, and I thought I'd got food poisoning because we'd been to a fish market um, in Zanzibar just before we left. So I stupidly kept telling the doctors in the hospital, I just, I just got back from Zanzibar, I was at a fish market, and they said, oh, yeah, well, it's very likely to be that then. So they kept sending me home, I, but it kept getting worse and worse, and I kept going back in, and then I'd get sent back again. And then after a couple of days, my appendix actually burst, and I, I was really ill, and I had peritonitis, and I, was, I went into hospital in an ambulance in the end, but still it took them a long time. It was a bank holiday. It was a Friday of a bank holiday which is the worst time, I think, to, to be admitted. So I didn't even get a scan until the following day, and I was like at death's door at that point. Oh, you're lucky you didn't and then, I know, I was. I, it was very close, I think. Um, you, I, I only really realised that looking back, but I was I was so out of it at the time. Anyway, so Actually, they... you must have been in a lot of pain. That's not just... No, it was... That yeah, must have been it, agony. It was. It was. Oh, my God. Oh, then I did you. childbirth, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the worst pain. Um, anyway, then uh, I'm... Long story short, uh, after 
a couple of, I think I started trying for a baby a year after and we, I, I, I stupidly, I didn't make the connection with the appendicitis for ages, but it's, it, I just wasn't getting pregnant and I kept going to the doctor and she sort of insisted that I just wasn't trying hard enough. Um, mm. And it was only, uh, my friend Kim said to me, did you not think it might be something to do with the appendix? And I Googled it and first thing that came up was like one of the complications can be uh, blocked fallopian tubes. Wow. So I went back but to the doctor with this. She was great. No, I know, she, it was brilliant that. because I'd been to the doctor loads of times and she'd never come up and I'd even mentioned the appendix to mm. her. Anyway, so yes, it turned out as soon as I finally got referred, I had this thing called hydrosalpinx, which is when your fallopian tubes are blocked. Um, so I had to have them removed and do IVF to have the children. Um, so, yeah, and that was what I th thought at the time. I mean, the, for the first one, for Clifford, I found it, the actual IVF part, the jabbing yourself with the needles and all, the, all of that, and the, and the side effects of the drugs weren't really the problem for me. But it's when you, I mean, anyone who's had IVF and failed will know, but the, the failure of the rounds is what's really devastating. And so I I failed two, and then on the third one, we ended up doing this thing called genetic screening, um, where it really, it's just a way of kind of avoiding unnecessary miscarriages, basically, because a lot of the time you will have a clutch of embryos and some of them will be... Um, abnormal but they won't be able to tell just by looking at them okay. and others aren't so they will put one inside you and then quite often you might test pregnant and then you're just never gonna it's never gonna make a baby hmm. so we did that on the second one um turned out that there was I, th I had seven embryos i think and all of them were duds basically it came back that not one of them would have made a baby so that was that was a real blow but in hindsight a great thing for me because i mean that's that's a potential seven miscarriages that i avoided by doing that and then the third one, um, we did it again and we had one good embryo and that was my first son. And then after that, I did another round for Bruce and it was successful the first time. And um, honestly, doing it again once you have a child is a completely different thing because you just, it's its just the different, I think the, the main, the really difficult thing when you haven't got children and you're trying for a child is that constant worry that you're never going to be a mother. Once you're a mother it's more a worry of like maybe they won't have a sibling which isn't for wasn't wouldn't have been for me as devastating i don't think yeah i mean i suppose that's a very i know that when my mum was trying to have a baby after my sister um she said she found it really tough because she knew she felt like she knew what she was missing out on and that for her that was as she felt like that would really was really hard but i don't what if she hadn't had another yeah which she didn't in the end yeah she had a lot of miscarriages and didn't end up having that baby but that's what that's what she said to me like right. when we spoke about it yeah but um i suppose yeah there's a lot to take in from what you've just said and i'm wondering what it felt like at the beginning when you found out that the appendicitis had meant that actually getting pregnant naturally was just not an option that's a really that's a that's a really big deal isn't yeah, it yeah i mean i felt there was a sense of relief to have it confirmed at, at the beginning but then, I mean, I don't, it's difficult. I don't want to start knocking any of the people involved, but it was a real, I, I was really unlucky. It was like a massive catalogue of failings that kind of got me in that position in the first place. It should have, shouldn't have got to that point at all. And mm. I, so I started, I did feel quite, I, I felt, I guess, quite pissed off that I'd been kind of let down by lots of people because I, I, I felt like I was, and my boyfriend confirmed this. He said he witnessed this happening on several occasions. 
I really felt like I was just being treated like a bit of a hysterical blonde a few times, like when I was going. Like, they really just didn't seem to take it seriously enough, any of it. Like when I when I went to the hospital, when I was on the phone to NHS Direct, I was given completely inaccurate advice, which a doctor since told me is complete nonsense. Um, so there was lots of things that kind of went wrong. So I did feel a little bit cross for a while, but... I was very galvanised to get on with it. Um, there was the waiting list was really long, so that was another blow. It was like ten months, and I'd already been ten waiting months. long enough. Yeah, and I just oh. so we decided that we'd try and get the money together to do it privately, which we did. And I'd been recommended this place that was supposed to be the place to go, and and that was it was horrible. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. It was it was kind of like a it was a bit of Handmaid's Tale the way they kind of lined all the women up in beds and stuck cannulas in their arm. It wasn't it was much. It was. It, they, they were very driven by results, I think, rather than mm. thinking about the, the human experience. Um, but then the second... I found a doctor for the second or third ones who was great. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's now I look back on it, I, I think I was so lucky. It was just... You do feel it... While you're going through it, you, you feel a bit of a victim, I suppose. Um, I remember reading about a woman who'd had exactly the same experience as me. Um, and she was suing the NHS because she was now in her 40s and she'd had lots of failed rounds of IVF. And it was exactly the same thing. I mean, word for word, she, mm. she, it had burst and lots of complications. And I think one of the hospitals had admitted fault. Um, and so I had this like background terror that that would be me in a few years' time and that it just actually wouldn't happen. And I looked into adoption and adoption is, you know, anyone who just says, oh, just adopt. I always get so frustrated when I hear or read that someone if someone's trying for a baby and they go, oh, why don't you just adopt? There's loads of children out there who need a home. A, there aren't actually, not in this country anyway. Um, and B, it's it's a really grueling process in itself, and yeah. you can't even begin it until you. And I think they they make you wait. I think it's a year or two years after IVF before they'll even begin to consider you because they say you need to grieve from that process. Why? Well, I actually didn't know that. No, so all of these things kind of become apparent when you look into, and then you can potentially adopt from overseas because overseas there are children who need um, homes, but then that's politically fraught because there's a lot of. It's all to do with the whether or not you can adopt from certain countries comes down to their relationship with the UK government, which is always changing. Oh, wow. There's like, I think probably in terms of letdowns, it's probably far worse than IVF, actually, I would think. Um, and then, of course, so many children who are adopted have been in the kind of care system for years and are you're going to have like a... I felt that if I adopted, I would have to probably give up work because you have to love them in a whole different way, I think, and you have to look after them really differently. So that was a fear as well because I didn't want to give up work. Um, yeah, I can understand it. Well, I know as well that when, even once you start the adoption process, that's on average like a couple of years, I think. And yeah. also you can be turned down at the you end You can of be that. turned down, yeah, you so can. So I do, I've heard... I know a perfectly reasonable woman story. who was turned down um, for, I don't know, I don't understand why. You know, they come, They come, I, I spoke to a few people, I went and had a meeting with this woman who sort of, who advises other people in it now that she's done it. And she said, you know, you have to be prepared. They will come and they will like, with a fine tooth comb, yeah. go over your house. They will look at the pictures on your walls and if you've got nudes on the walls, they might say that's inappropriate. Should they found cat poo in my garden and said that, you know, that I couldn't possibly allow this to happen with a baby. Should A, I didn't even have a baby at that point and B you know my cat had just done a poo and I, you know yeah. they'd come round at 10 o'clock in the evening so you know you don't have to go through anything like that when you have a child conceived naturally yeah. so yeah it's it's tough but anyway now what I'm trying to say is I know now that I'm a mother how fortunate I was because I have 
I mean, anyone who's had IVF will probably be in this position. You become like a go-to person for other women going through it. And so I, I would, anyone who vaguely knew me or who knew someone who knew me would get in touch when they were going through it because I was always really keen to talk to and advise people because it's really bewildering when it finally, when it happens to you. You don't know where to look. There's loads of people kind of selling the, the whole dream to you and you. it's really difficult to know what to do next. And I felt something of an expert of it by the time I finished because I'd done so much reading about it. Um, and I have met so many women since who have like had far, far more. In fact, one friend has she had 17 failed rounds of IVF she did she yeah and she did and she just couldn't stop going and I totally understand that because the only thing that kept me from being in a depression was every I would be depressed after each failed one and then the idea of continuing would be uh, the the only the the only thing that would kind of lift you out of it would be that sudden decision okay I'm going to do it again and then you could start living again because you had home and she's 17 on, on she was her seventeenth. She'd said was absolutely her final one. She's now pregnant. And she's giving she's having her baby on Saturday. I know. So I look at things like I mean, and oh, I wow. can't tell you how happy I mean, I like even want to cry just thinking about it. But I think you become really, really invested in other women going through it. Oh, can't, did you have that person for you when you were going through it? The person you called? Uh, I had a few. It? Yeah, I had yeah. a few people. I had some really. I met some amazing women. I sat next to someone at a dinner once who I'd never met before and. She was just so. She had tried and failed, and she she accepted it and moved on, and was really happy in her marriage. And she was very cool. I think about her a lot. I, I bump into her sometimes still, but she because mm. she was a great example of someone who actually who said, "Okay, this is enough," and just like and and I I don't know how you I don't I would have really struggled to reach that point. I think um, it's she such was a personal great. Thing all around, isn't it? The whole thing of it, your relationship with all of it. Um, with how you think of yourself as a mother before, whether or not you plan to be a mum, what kind of a mum you end up being if you're lucky enough to have kids. And, yeah, your relationship with your own fertility, um, how many children you'd like to... All of it is so... Mm. It's so personal. And and a lot of it is n- completely out of our hands. And you... How, That's what, how so, you I mean, to, it's all... I mean, when it comes to infertility or, like, problems, fertility problems, it's totally out of your hands. And that's what's so frustrating about it, I think. Because yeah. a lot of the women... I know certainly for me and a lot of the women I spoke to, you know, they're kind of driven, successful people who've kind of put everything in place. They're working really hard. And then there's this one thing that they just can't, they can't make it happen anyway. Mm. It doesn't, obviously, they're, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to get the money to keep going, and that's what it comes down to eventually. But, you know, even to, I, it's not, even for those people who've managed to do 17, it's a question of like selling houses and things sometimes. Yeah. But if it, it, I think it, generally, if you, keep going you you are much more likely to get there because it is it's like a lucky dip you've got so many eggs and some of them are going to work and some aren't and you have to just keep going back in but at the same time it's also like gambling because you get really addicted to to the the hope and there is a chance that you could lose hundreds of thousands of pounds and come out without a baby and feeling completely yeah and there's also some people where they've been twice. through the process and then actually I spoke to a woman who, her and her husband actually had quite bad postnatal depression after um, waiting seven years for their baby, and then um, mm, wow. because there's lots along the way that's really isolating, and you can have lots of people around you that are really good for support. But I think there's lots about the process of of all you know whether it's IVF or not. Actually, I think just being a, finding yourself responsible for a small 
human that's very vulnerable. It's yeah, and then I think if you've had, you've had IVF, there's this weird added thing when the baby arrives. Partly there's an anxiety, and I'm sure all new mothers are anxious about their baby, but I, I feel like it may be slightly heightened because you've always you, you spent your whole pregnancy terrified you're going to lose it, and then mm. the baby's here, and then you're terrified he's going to get sick or something. Yes. Uh, but the other thing is there's this weird sort of added layer of guilt because you just think if you want to go back to work, you know, but I've wanted this child so much, you know, I've, I like tried so hard. Should I be leaving them for a day or an hour or should I be going and having a night on my own somewhere? You, you start to feel this weird or, or if you're finding it really overwhelming and stressful or maybe if you have depression, you kind of feel extra guilty. Like you, you, you tried so hard and now you're kind of you're struggling with it. You don't ever want to complain about anything. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case and I think I think that's probably why I like having this conversation with lots of different people because I think those those themes run through most most mothers minds you know that's that's just part of part and parcel of it and I find chatting to people about it really helpful because I think it was probably in part motivated by my own guilt and the, how I've tried to balance doing the thing that I love but also feeling like I'm a good mum because mm. I think on my you know, on my deathbed, the thing I would like is my legacy is just being a good parent would be number one on the list, I think. Um, did you find your relationship with your work did change once you were a mother? Yeah, um, it did, definitely. But I I think, to begin with, definitely, it really helped. Um, I'd had I'd had this really protracted period of, like, I guess I'd call it, like, artist block, where I just... I wasn't really happy with the work that I was making and I felt I just couldn't really find a way out of the work that I'd been doing into the work that I wanted to be making. Um, and it was, maybe it was sort of tied in with the fertility thing. I don't, I, cause I continued to work through all of that, but I think it was a bit joyless. Um, particularly as that it wasn't the thing that I wanted the most, which was to be a mother. And, but then, yeah, once I did have a child, I did find, um, after three months, I got a, I, we had a part-time nanny and I would work maybe three short days a week. And I just felt it was just so nice to having had that length of time not working. Maybe I just needed a break from it all. But also I think it's when you've got this very limited time, you don't really mess around. I, I, I think I've spent too much time thinking and not enough doing for a period maybe. And I just thought, well, I've only got this long, so I better just crack on with something. And that really helped. And... Um, that was a that was in the beginning, but then it did definitely. I found I had a. It's definitely there was a quiet period with my work with when the children were young, which was fine, and I very much chose that at the beginning. I thought, well, now is the time. I'm going to be a mother. I'm not going to stop working altogether, but I don't care as much about that and about the success I may be having. And so I started to sort of turn a few, a few things down. I stopped really going out socially much, and. That, it was all fine to begin with, but then you suddenly realise that because you've done all of that, people are kind of forgetting who you are and not, you're not getting the requests to do things as much as you used to and you start to actually miss that a little, a little bit. Mm. And once it's gone, it's kind of harder to start to kind of get that going again. So I did make a very kind of conscious decision to just get on with the work and to get to my second son into full-time childcare as soon as I could so that I could actually... I put on a show during lockdown and it was really important that I did that even though it was the worst possible time in the end to do it because, I mean, I'd have all these people saying, oh, it's amazing with all this extra time, I'm learning a language. What are you doing with the extra time? <laughs> so, well, I've got half the time I had before because the children are at home the whole time. But 
somehow I did do it and it went really well and it kind of, it just springboarded loads of other stuff that's happened as a consequence and I feel like I'm getting back into that now but um, it's it just peaks and troughs, you know, I think you just have to accept that that's the way it is and I, like you, I think that very, whenever I'm feeling really frustrated about it, I stop and think, Come, but what is more important, they're growing up really quickly, I'm going to look back on this time and do I want to have just thought that I was in the studio the whole time or do I want to think that I was there with them? Because all of that stuff can come back again. I can do that later. Yeah, and I suppose it's, you know, as long as you're getting enough of what you need to feel like you in the equation as well. I think yeah. it's really important to still. I do think being a little bit selfish about it is quite. You good. need well, you're just a better <laughs> mum as a result. I think yeah. you're so much. I'm so much nicer to them when I've had a day at work. <laughs> I am. And over the holidays, I had I, I worked very little, and I was mostly with them for the six weeks summer break. And I was, by the end of it, I was getting so ratty with them and like shrieky. And I just thought, oh, God, I'm not being very kind to them. I just need a couple of hours. And so every now and then, if I got the chance, I'd take a couple of hours just to go and like catch up on emails and things. And I'd come back and I'd be sitting down and playing with them again. And, you know, yeah. they appreciate that. Definitely. One thing I did want to touch on, actually, when I was, I was reading an article you, about when you were going through IVF. And I think you made a really, a point that really resonated with me about the forums online where women are talking about pregnancy yeah. and how a lot of it is quite infantilized in yeah. terms of the language mm-hmm. and little emoticons and stuff yeah and i was laughing because you were saying there's lots of anachronisms like they said B- bd B- BD? baby dance which is having sex just outrageous there's loads of them aren't there and i remember is it dh like darling husband dh yeah and then ds darling son dd darling daughter everything's but but then i mean and then uh, they would t- any kind of miscarriages would be kind of talked about with like a little angel with wings, and it was all yeah. And wishing you baby dust and all of that, baby, sprinkling baby dust on you. Yeah, that was the other one. I do wonder where that comes from, actually. That way that because I've, I've noticed that when the times when I've vented towards those forums, maybe when I've been thinking about having another baby or I've been in the early stage of pregnancy, I want to check something seems mm. you know normal. Yeah, and you find yourself in you these find places. yourself reading them a lot. When you yeah, just, they can be very helpful when you and want also to find out. Also, you're thinking, I want to know what happened next to that person. Did yeah. they end up having the baby? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, um, there is a lot of it that's done in this very sort of soft, childlike language, and I don't know what that's about really. I wonder if it's protecting I mean, I wonder, yourself a little bit. Yeah, possibly. Or, or not wanting to offend other people, maybe. Could, yeah, I think it's partly that. Like, they want to they want to make sure that they're always... I mean, there, there's a lot of kindness between these women, and I think it's great. You know, there's a lot of support. Some people on there clearly really uh, might are probably lacking support elsewhere, and a lot of them do. You know, you notice that they're checking in on people and saying, how are you and how's it going? And mm. So th- they've got a really... And I didn't post on them, but I used to read them loads because I got a lot of information out of it. So they were very helpful. I didn't really want to knock them, but I did think, like, what, what, where's the kind of straightforward discussion about this? And I think this might have changed a bit since I wrote about that. But I found that so I would go into these IVF waiting rooms and we were all in the same boat. And then there's also... The, and you, you sort of... You'd think there should be. And there was sometimes you'd notice a couple of people that sort of buddied up, but... You think really we should all be kind of here supporting each other, talking about this, and yet everyone would just be like looking at their phones. I would be googling like you know what happens when you've got this blood count, or whatever it might be, and just reading about it rather than like looking up and t- talking to anyone around me. There was also a weird sort of sense, almost of like a, I think there was like a strange competitive thing because some of us we knew that some of us in the room would get pregnant and some of us wouldn't. Yeah. So there was that strange, almost kind of furtive looks up at each other. And yeah. I just found the whole situation really 
strange the first time around, actually. Um, because then you'd go online and you'd get all this really cosy language between women and yet in reality we were all sitting side by side yeah. completely ignoring each other. Maybe a worry as well, um, but if you talk about it openly that it's going to somehow sort of uh, yeah, tempt fate, it's going to go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, Or it could just be a, the fact that the kind of women who post on those forums yeah, they uh, like, you know, like to talk like that, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't really have true. spoken like that and I never posted, so it's it could true, just yeah. have been that. Weighed in with your brown yeah, language. exactly. <laughs> You've been chased off. <laughs> um, and, and, and are you the sort of mother you thought you would be? Do you think? It's quite hard to know Ooh, sometimes. That's, that's an interesting question. I've never really thought about that. I think I'm a little bit slightly better than I thought I would be, maybe. But not... Hmm. <sighs> It's hard to know. Yeah, that's tricky. I, 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 the reason I'm saying that was because my I've got an older sister who's she's like the model mother. She had children in her twenties. She's got three children. She took quite a long period away from work and did. And she never she's never had a nannies. I'm not to say I'm not knocking women who have nannies, but she chose to do everything, and she did everything, and she did it really well. And mm. she would sit and she would make things with them and do cards. And I just look at her and think she's like an alien species to me. I have no idea how she gets to, how she can do that because I'd spend five minutes with her kids and have to go and lie down. I found it so exhausting. <laughs> so I did always think we're so different and we'll do it really really differently. But I think I was underestimating the fact that when they're your children you do get a lot more pleasure out of doing those things with them than you would if you were teaching other people in the nursery or something. Mm. She is still definitely an infinitely more patient and present mother than I have been. But I have definitely found so much joy in, like... I used to look at the baby groups and things. I'd walk into galleries and there'd be women sitting on a mat with toys and babies doing stuff and I think oh god I couldn't do that mm. or I'd go or the whole NCT thing I think I don't know if I can do that and I did all of it and I loved it and I you know I've got a group of great friends that I made out of NCT we still text I mean literally every day we probably text each other oh, now and that nice. was after over five years ago mm-hmm. uh, and I went and I did all of those gallery type things and when you sit on a mat with your baby and you kind of interact with them and, and I just didn't appreciate how different it is when you've got this little person of your own and you suddenly it's like you kind of have this superpower to kind of jump in their body and see things through their eyes. And mm. it's really... That's a lovely that, way to put it, actually. You sort of feel reborn, I think. that's And that's what I, I really felt sad about when I was unsure if I could have children. Although I knew I would have... Somehow I was going to... I would have adopted, I would have done something in the end to have a child because I desperately wanted to kind of... You just want to share the world with someone else, desperately. And it's really, yeah, it's kind of like having, it's an amazing kind of renewal. It's like shedding your skin halfway through life and being able to just appreciate the joy of stuff again that you, you know, I, I think I was a bit jaded and that's completely gone now. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, did you have a childhood that's at all similar to the childhood they're having? No, no, it was quite pretty different, actually. Um, it was in the country. Um it was we had a well we do we take them to the country a lot actually so they have their moments there where they're really free running kind of wild outside and that's mm. so that definitely has some parallels uh but no I went to a little village school which had 25 people in the entire school oh wow <laughs> whereas Cliff has got more people than that in his entire cl- in his class mm-hmm. um we didn't have many people coming and going through my parents didn't get on very well so they weren't you know I didn't have that kind of happy marriage as a model um 
I know, it was really different, actually. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. when you when you realise that, the things you've picked up and the things you just sort of yeah. change for them. I mean, I do think one day, I, I always think we will move to the country at some point, maybe in time for secondary school, probably just at the point when they want to be in the city. <laughs> uh, drag them off. So there will be parallels. But um, but no, I often look at them and think, wow, your childhood's so different to mine. You know, you're living in the city, you're mm. a city child and you have all of these different people coming and going and you know I'm not saying it's any better or worse really but it's different it'd be interesting to see how it affects them yeah and um before I let you go when when they have friends come over are their friends curious to look in the freezers in your basement because I, I would definitely <laughs> want to do that if my friend had. well actually it's quite funny because I did during um well when we weren't we're getting the school's relaxing a bit about letting us in inside the school gates and things but during that period when they were back at school but we weren't allowed in they did this they had a day about what was it called it was like jobs people do day or something where they all got to dress up as different um different jobs and I had a last minute kind of panic about what he was going to be so we just threw loads of paint over his clothes and he went in as an as an artist and then they asked if um any parents would like to do a zoom call to the class and talk about their job uh, so I, 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 he always wants me to do all of this stuff and I'd missed out on school trips and stuff. So I said, yeah, yeah I'll do that for your class. And the teacher was quite excited because she said, oh, this is going to be quite a fun one because you've got a studio and everything and we can, and can we see the studio? And I said, yeah, it's fine. Anyway, I came last, I think, in the day and the kids were all really <laughs> bored and tired because they were all like four years old. So they were all like, they kept getting up off the mat and running around. And she, <laughs> she kept saying, can you, I'm, just going, I'm so sorry, Polly, I'm really sorry. They, they are, they're just a bit tired. But she was going, will you sit down? She's trying to talk to you about her work. <laughs> and I just wasn't engaging them at all. And I said, who wants to look in my freezer? And they all went like, yeah. And I was like, no, who wants to see some dead snakes? And they went crazy. So at that point, they all just sat down like that. And she said, right, sit down and you can see some dead snakes. And they all just sat glued to the carpet, staring at the screen while I took them through the freezer and pulled things out. And they still, like, they run up to me now and go like, How you, can we see your dead snakes again? That's and one awesome. of them, he's only had one kid back since then, actually. <laughs> and yeah, as I was about to take, run him home, I said, do you want to have a quick look downstairs? So yeah. I did take him down there, yeah. So hopefully, <laughs> like I say, I'm gonna, I'll enter into a cool period for a couple of years and then, and then it'll be like, can you just lock the basement, please, and like hide all your work when my friends come around? <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking about, like, I was, because I think I saw something where you say that sometimes you've got a few people that do just sort of randomly send you animals that might yeah. be suitable for your work and sometimes they can't arrive without warning. And like here, if people open my packages by accident, they'll get some like <laughs> random sequined ice skating costume from me, baby. They open your package. Mom, someone sent you a rabbit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I even had one guy once sent me a live snake once. Oh, what, by accident? I don't think it was by accident. He was a very odd guy. I think he was like playing weird games. I don't know, but he wow. said it was. He's, uh, but I did then, I looked into the snake, which was a harmless snake called a hognose and they do play dead a lot apparently so it's oh. possible that he just wasn't paying much attention and he slung it in this Tupperware but I didn't open it it was this intern I had at the time she opened it and, she, and it started moving and she completely freaked out poor thing <laughs> yeah that's but play, no, we always, no, always, always alerted the dogs would always run to the package so I'd always be alerted about a dead animal by the, my sniffer dogs ah oh, very smart but helpful yeah. helpful canines oh cool so you said you'd like to learn through sort of tactile means is that something you introduce with your kids too have they participated in that with you well i've just noticed that kids they are so sensory aren't they i mean they that one of their favorite toys is always slime all of that stuff that they just love like i often interject when they i'm always yelling at them at supper times and i have to sort of stand back sometimes and think oh just let them just smash the jelly all over the counter you know they're obviously really enjoying it just this morning 
my son Bruce wouldn't eat any breakfast. I ended up giving him a, a biscuit because I was desperate for him to eat something. And I turned around, he just, he just smashed the whole thing into a big pile of crumbs and he was just like really delightedly making a little kind of pyramid out of them. And you just, it's like that is the way they learn. They're like little scientists, aren't they? I mean, they're constantly conducting experiments all the time. Yeah. And I have to keep reminding myself that because it's not really mess to them. They're just learning. So yes, I will absolutely um, encourage that in terms of like work and play and I want to, I, I'm, I will completely sit down with them and skin an animal at some point if they will. I've got feeling, I mean, Cliff is kind of very, he's very clean and neat and he likes to wear suits. And um, I've got a feeling he might find it a bit messy. He'd be keen, he really loves to please me and to do things that I do. So I think he'll do it as long as he's got a pair of rubber gloves or something. <laughs> and I think Bruce would probably just end up smearing himself with blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite an image, a, su- a suited person in little gloves, age five. And yeah. Yeah, bloodstained one. But I think, um, I think actually it being not squeamish about the circle of life is brilliant. I'm really glad I was raised that way. It's actually a really nice to not freak out about it because it is something that surrounds us. It's just a helpful tool, isn't it, when you're growing up? I think you can't, um, you're going to get a real shock otherwise. Yeah. You can't avoid it forever. Yeah, exactly. I'd be up for doing some more taxidermy. I'd have to come over and... Bring the kids. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like a family, another family day. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> With a rabbit sounds, this time. That sounds perfect. I'd honestly be up for that. Yeah. I do think my kids think I'm quite old with a lot of the stuff that's in the house. But they don't really bat an eyelid after a while. No, exactly. They just accept everything. That's what I love about Definitely. children. They just don't. I honestly think there was a period when Clifford thought that everyone had snakes in the freezer. <laughs> You just, you know, that's just normal life to you. Of course, you wouldn't even question it. Yeah. Good names, by the way, Clifford oh, and Bruce. Do you like them? Brilliant Thanks. names. Bruce started as a joke and then we learned to love it. <laughs> we were trying to think of the least, we were saying, now what's the least likely name to become fashionable soon? Because like all of the other ones that we liked had obviously been taken thousands of times. And then I remember just, we were just like, we were winding each other up laughing with, like, Kenneth was another one I liked. And then I said, what about Bruce? And Matt was like, oh my God, we can't. Get your baby. Can you imagine a baby called Bruce? I was like, actually, I can. He went, yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And I looked up because they've had the, the Office of National Statistics have done kids' names recently. Yeah, where well, you can see the percentage. Yeah, and I of... put it, I put, um, actually, Bruce isn't doing too badly. I think there's like, there was about 30 last year. Really? Clifford, two. <laughs> two Clifford. So he's like dropped off the, li- almost dropped off entirely, which I'm quite, quite pleased about secretly. I know, I love that. I've actually done that and, um, the one I did the best on, I think, was Ray. There's Ray, just hardly yeah. any little kids called Ray. Yeah, and I love the fact it's well. such an old man name. Yeah. I really love but it. But it's lovely when you think of a, a sun, a, a ray of sun. It's yeah. a lovely word. It is, it is, yeah. You get involved in it. What are all your five then? You've got Kit, Ray, Mickey. Yeah, you've done it in an odd order, oh, so who have I missed out? Jesse and Sonny. Yeah, so Sunny, oh, Sunny, Sunny Kit, Sunny's Ray, Jesse, Mickey. Had, we had that at some point on a list. Yeah. Sun, sorry, say that again. So Sunny, who's Sunny, 17. Yeah. Kit, who's 12. Who I just met. Yeah, who you just met. Uh, nine-year-old Ray, five-year-old Jesse, and two-year-old Mickey. Wow, <laughs> five boys, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It really is. <laughs> well, just five, actually. It's quite amazing. I know, five of anything. I know. Yeah. Was it always a plan? Did you have plan to have that many kids? No, I don't think I did. I, I, I sometimes feel like just I just would have had going. one, in a way. One or, one or lots. I mean, I. yeah, it's funny as well. Now... This, I know this sounds quite eccentric of me, but I, I sort of feel like I can't really remember how I got to this point because I, I was sort of in the flow, I think. Yeah. And they'd always get to about two and I'd think, oh, one more. I mean, when I had my third, I literally asked the consultant on the day I gave birth if it would be okay to have another one. 
maybe. Wow. Because I've had all C-sections as well, so I was worried about that maybe they might say, no, three is done. Okay. I didn't realise there was any kind of limit on that, actually. No, I don't think that... Well, maybe there used to be. And then when I was having my fourth, I was very... I kept saying, this is my last baby, definitely. And then I got about halfway through the pregnancy. I was like, maybe not. And then I had Jess, and then about... When he was about 18 months, I just really really broody wow. I don't really, really feel like I knew what broody was until no I actually don't think I do know what broody is still now it, I, I don't really get it when I'm around other babies it wasn't just like I want it wasn't like um just a, a desire it was like my brain kept turning all thoughts towards so baby pregnant. it was very it was actually quite annoying if I'm honest because I you felt to like cure it shut it up silence it by getting pregnant a little bit I sort of spoke about it a bit um uh, was mainly met with, you know, probably not a great idea from like uh, most of the family. But I could see a little chink in the armor for Richard. I thought I'm gonna just I'll push on. That. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I thought I just would like one more. And now my brain is being quite. Because it's like they're at the same age where there's normally wow. another okay, one. And, so there's an age and it's not just me. Basically. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think so. And also, the kids start talking about it a lot. So, my 12 year old is so very insistent. He's like, one more. Really? He's got no idea how biology works. He said to me, can you just have one more? Wow. And I was like, I said, that's Kit, you know, I'm that's full. really nice that it a 12 year old would want another yeah, one. Lo- I would have thought that was it. a kind of age where he was a bit over. No, he's really into it. And he said, I said, Kit, I'm already 42. I wouldn't be able to have another baby till I was 43. And he was like, well, he was going, I said, how long do you think it takes to make a baby? He said, I'm answer that exactly. It's just going to take a while, no matter what. So it's, I'm going to be a bit older, I think. And he's like, well, I mean, you had Jesse in November. And I was like, no, you can have a baby in any month of the year, <laughs> but I can't have choose that it's November yeah. coming up because that's just not how it works. There's a lot, actually, of fun- fundamental um, lack of grasp of what actually goes on. I mean, when I told him about the last baby, I said, I'm having a baby, and he said... So, did you have SEX last night? <laughs> like, uh, nine months ago. And he went, why didn't you tell me? No, nine months ago. Why didn't you I said, three months me? ago, why won't you tell me? I said, Kit, we just had sex. I was like, Kit, you do not want the kind of childhood where your mother tells you every time your parents do it. Like, just trust me That's on that. Hilarious. That is not what you want oh, from so, life. So I suppose he thinks every time you have sex, you get pregnant. Exactly, we'll exactly. Well, um, I couldn't even think about it. I remember the, the second one, I, it was... It was more a case of I definitely want to have another child at some point. I should probably get going because of the IVF, I thought. So that's and then it just worked. So that was great. But now the thing is, we've got this weird situation where we have one. When I did IVF for Bruce, we did um, we did genetic screening again, and this round was just a really successful round, and we had two this time that, uh-huh. that came through the screening. So we've got one frozen. So I've got this really weird situation where even though I think if I had never had fertility problems, I would have gone for two kids, I feel like I've got a third on. I just paid for the storage for another year the other day. And uh, once they've reached day five, when they freeze them, they have a, they've already got a sex, a hair colour, an eye colour. All of those things are determined. So to not give it a chance to me feels like having an abortion. So I, and I'm 41, so I feel kind of, I'm feeling a bit like, oh, I'm quite old to have another child now. But um, I feel like at some point I'm absolutely going to have to give it a chance. Isn't and the, the lucky thing for me is it's the embryo of a 36-year-old, so I could even... I mean, I don't, I'm not going to do this, but you could do it when you're 50 and it doesn't make a difference because it's wow. the, the age of the embryo, not the womb, that's important. Isn't that amazing? I know, it is. But um, I feel like I have to make my mind up on that really soon. Oh, 
That's like a whole but other... I really did not feel ready. I mean, wow, Bruce is such a handful. The thought, it's taken until he's three, I think, to even... I have started thinking, okay, I, I, now that they're kind of playing together a bit more and mm. not trying to kill each other. That's a whole... I can't even imagine having that. But they probably help a little bit too, right? Do they, they help... Do they, the older kids must help a bit when you've got a baby. Like, at least yes. you don't... No, you know, they're when brilliant you've got, When you've got one, you can't leave the room because you might kill... You can at least say, just make sure oh, the no, baby no, they're really helpful. down the stairs. Def- yeah, there's definitely a bit of that that goes on. I think, for me, it's more like I can't imagine what it must feel like to, to have... It's not just a... Because sometimes you get that kind of idea of someone... You know, is there another baby out there that could join another mm. kid that could join the family? But actually knowing that, well, that's the, the problem because I would have to make a decision. And you know, women do this all the time. And of, of, some women, um, IVF was semi went quite well for me in terms of what how many embryos produced. But some women produce loads of embryos mm. and they have like six or seven frozen. So it's wow. kind of they just have to decide to you just switch it off basically and they and they the embryos die at that point but yeah I, but I think the fact that it's just one as well if it was three then I, I'd almost find it easier to just get because I'm definitely not gonna have three more kids mm. whereas one more just feels like and also because it's Bruce's twin they were created on the same day wow and it was completely random which one was put in first which is kind of that amazing and then I will always feel guilty that it? I gave one of them life and not the other one yeah so yeah it's it's a very weird thing I mean I know I know someone with two children created well there must be hundreds of people like this Mm. two children one's older than the other but it's entirely down to chance which one they've put in that day who's the eldest and who's the youngest wow i mean there's enough there's enough of a kind of miraculous nature to what i know to conception anyway anyway that's like a whole extra yeah layer but completely brilliant and also the stories that you know will come out of it all and the generations that come for i mean it's just it's wonderful what an amazing I love that about family, the whole the way the cards fall and that ends up being so so part of what makes us and so defining. But actually so yeah. much of it is just this really everybody's got like their own little wiggly route to where they ended up. Well, thank you for complimenting my wonky taxidermy. So that was very generous. <laughs> no, I feel like I wasn't complimentary enough. I'm sorry. No, you were, extremely you, good first effort. It was literally way better than mine. Exactly the level of compliment that <laughs> probably slightly above actually though. If, so when you said that mice aren't a good thing to start on, what would you have suggested as a good starter animal? Uh, probably a rabbit. Rabbit? That's yeah. huge. Yeah, but it takes. It's, you can pull a rabbit's skin off very quickly, whereas oh. you have to go very carefully with a mouse, and their skins are very tough. You're less likely to tear it. Okay. Um, Learn something new every day. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try that next time. Okay, next up, <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> That's pretty good. Ah, thank you so much, Polly. What a brilliant, brilliant chat. And just if you're someone that's listening that is going through IVF or knows someone that they care about that's going through IVF, I just want to spend lots and send lots and lots of love and support your way because I know what a big, big deal that is. And thank you to Polly for speaking so openly about it because I think it's very easy to feel so, so alone in that process. And she's right. There's a lot of women that don't really speak about it too much because you don't kind of want to jinx it. Also, it's probably very hard to articulate just how much it's taken over your life when other people are not experiencing the same thing as you. But actually, in my house, um, when I was a teenager, my stepmom went through a few rounds of IVF, and I could see firsthand what a huge deal it was. And obviously, I've had some very close friends of mine go through it. And in fact, one of them's going through it as we speak. 
So yes, just sending lots and lots and lots of love and support your way. And uh, I hope you've, you're feeling um, good about everything and that you've got good people around you because, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and also, I love the idea of Polly having her kids bring over mates to go and see the dead snakes in the freezer. It makes me feel a little bit less weird about my house, which is filled with loads of rubbishy stuff and bits and bobs to look at and the occasional dead animal maybe that's been stuffed by, you know, me and their dad. <laughs> As you know what, I don't think my kids have ever shown our little taxidermy mice to any of their mates. Maybe I should start bringing that up. Conversation starter, you know. Do your friends want to see our taxidermy? Yeah, I'll try that out next week. Anyway, uh, may I just leave it in your mind about my kitchen disco dance-a-thon for next week? I know I'm now banging on about it, but it would just be really amazing if you could just support me in any way. So... Yeah, I think it's going to be really motivating when I start actually raising tons of money for children in need. So I'd love you to be a part of that if you'd be so kind. It would really mean a lot to me. Or maybe even if you just message me with a really good dance move that will take some pressure off my lower back during my 24-hour challenge, that'd be cool too. And come and join me. You can find me on the red button. I believe it's on BBC, BBC Sounds for the entirety. Or you can listen back to part of it on BBC Sounds as well. And... Uh, you know what I'm supposed to do from today is I'm supposed to stop drinking caffeine because apparently if I have a week off caffeine, that'll mean when I drink caffeine next week, it's going to have much more impact. But I don't really want to stop drinking caffeine. I really like it. What I'm thinking I might do is stop coffee from today because that's the big one, isn't it? I don't know if you drink coffee, but I have one a day and I really look forward to it. So I might start drink stop drinking coffee from now and then I might go decaf tea maybe from like tomorrow or the next day just sort of wean myself down a little bit i love my tea but then decaf's all right isn't it maybe i won't really notice it that much because it'll taste the same no i'll definitely notice it i love caffeine <sighs> anyway i would like it to have an impact when i drink it next week so i guess it's worth the sacrifice maybe i'm supposed to be doing core exercise as well but mm, not so much <laughs> I'm going to find out a lot about myself, aren't I, when I'm 16 hours in and everything on my body hurts. Anyway, don't worry about it. They don't call it a challenge for nothing. Uh, next week's guest, mm, there's two people it might be, so I'm not going to say anything because I've got myself tied in knots with that before. And in the meantime, I'm still on tour with Steps, where I'm after this week. I've got Manchester this week and Aberdeen, I believe, and lots of other fun stuff. So... I'll see you here next week or I'll see you on the road somewhere or you'll find me on the red button. Uh, basically, if you want me, you know where to find me. All right, in the meantime, have an amazing week. Love you lots. Bye, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.